everyone, and welcome to One Great History, a podcast all about the great and sometimes not so great stories from Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm one of your hosts, Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by our friend and producer, Nick. Hey, everyone. I'm producer Nick. Hey! <laughs> hey so today we're to talking... <laughs> it's good to see you guys, too. I miss recording. <laughs> yeah. I've been bugging my family with all this stuff, and I think they're very tired. <laughs> <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about polio, which is a thing that we don't really have anymore. <laughs> well, not not in North America anyway. No, no. Um, have you guys ever had polio? <laughs> uh, I did. I have not had polio, but my grandpa did. Oh, there we go. Yeah. A yeah. person in my town, like a classmate of mine's aunt had polio. Yeah, not, not so common anymore. He no. did have like a lifelong limp though. Yeah, the girl in town had like canes essentially mm-hmm. wow that's crazy yeah not yeah. a not a fun thing to have nick do you know anyone that had polio <laughs> no i had whooping cough once uh, oh no that's that's about as bad as yeah. i got i think <laughs> yeah um so i think this proves that polio is not a thing that people really have to worry about anymore yeah no. okay. and that is thanks to mass vaccination efforts in the 50s and 60s so i thought we'd do kind of like a topical episode for once right we're recording this right in the midst of another mass vaccination effort i just got my first vaccine about a week ago mine tomorrow awesome getting mine monday so that's exciting yeah Yeah. my wife got yeah so we're probably feeling feeling a little something of what they felt when uh, the polio vaccine first came out i guess something akin to that i think but yeah it's Oh, I can see Genghis. Hello. There's a cat. Look out. <laughs> I'm just worried he's going to try and step on my laptop. Because sometimes he does that. He's fine. He just wants to hear about polio. Maybe. Yeah, he likes to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so polio, in case you don't know, is a disease that was pretty common across the early 20th century in most of the world and is still common in other countries today. Essentially, it attacks your nervous system, so it can cause paralysis in more severe cases. And then in the most severe, it can cause death, essentially by paralyzing your lungs so you can't breathe. It is not a particularly fun disease, as if any disease is particularly fun. But the interesting thing about polio is that it wasn't really an issue before the early 1900s. Huh. Like, it seems like it mutated around then to become worse. Like, for a while, it was just kind of a thing kids caught. It'd be like a fever and stiffness, and then you'd recover. Oh, interesting. I don't really know enough about diseases to know why that would happen. But (laughs) that is regardless of what happens. So in the early 20th century, we start to see polio cases crop up in North America. And polio really impacts children mostly, generally under nine. And because it causes paralysis for many years, it was just called infantile paralysis. Polio only really catches on by the like, late 1930s. Does the word polio mean anything? Uh, it's short for something, but if you give me a second, I can look it up. It was a long word that I didn't think would be fun to say over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so infantile paralysis. So I guess at that point, they maybe didn't totally know what was causing that paralysis, right? Oh, they did not, know. So it's okay. called poliomyelitis. Okay. Yeah. So the thing is, polio is very much a mystery disease for much of this. So we don't really see polio in Manitoba until 1916, but it was like a well-known disease. There's reports in the papers about epidemics in New York, in Toronto, as they crop up. So people in Winnipeg knew what polio was. And 
beyond that, they didn't really know too much. It's not really clear how it was spread or anything else, how you could catch it, how you could treat it. It's all a mystery. What we know now is that polio is generally spread um, through the stool of an infected person to the mouth of someone else. So if you go to the bathroom <laughs> and don't wash your hands and then like serve someone food, you can sort of spread polio that way. I like and your that- attempt to not say poop, Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best to be very serious. Yeah. But yeah, if you touch poop with polio in it and then like touch someone else's mouth, I guess you can give them polio, but don't do that. That's super right. weird. <laughs> yeah, but obviously like contaminated food, contaminated water. Yeah. So early polio symptoms would include stuff like a fever, headache, stiffness, uh, nausea, nick rigidity, and then like limb tenderness. So anything that you might kind of have with a severe fever too, like if you get sick enough with a fever, you will also get sore. Mm. So that early stage is kind of tough to tell. And then polio eventually hits Winnipeg in 1916. And the first case was treated at the King George Hospital, which will come up a couple of times now. So King George was part of a larger complex called the Municipal Hospital. It is where the Riverview Health Center is today. It's like in St. Boniface, kind of off of the river. Right. Okay. And yeah, essentially um, the Municipal Hospital included the temporary hospital, uh, King George or King Edward Memorial Hospital and Princess Elizabeth Hospital, which opened a little later on. And they treated stuff like um, influenza and sort of spreadable diseases. It was used across multiple epidemics in the city. Mm. So when you catch polio, you're probably going to go there. And once polio hits Winnipeg, they start reporting or they start sort of giving out tips on how to prevent polio. So I'm going to tell you how to prevent polio from 1916. Okay. Uh, This will be very uh, helpful. Yeah, like drinking bleach and stuff that crazy people were saying about uh, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually not too bad. It's just very broad. Okay. So report case to health authorities. Restrict all affected children to the premises. They must co- not come into contact with other children. Okay. Thorough disinfection of patient and everything coming from the sick room. Milk containers must not be removed from the premises. Milkmen must not touch utensils. Family members should use 1% solution uh, peroxide hydrogen for gargle and general disinfection. And then books, toys, other things used to amuse the patient must be burned. Oh. Library, oh, wow. and school books, uh, library and school books must not be returned. Uh, household pets have to be kept endured and care of teeth is a preventative measure. Is that like the Velveteen Rabbit? Was that about polio? I was just going to say, I don't think that was... <laughs> I don't think that kid had polio, but now I don't remember. I don't know. You're going to have to look up... <laughs> Do you not know the Velveteen no. Rabbit? Oh, it's a oh, story it's so about, sad. it's like a children's, it's a super sad children's book about a little boy who has this like Velveteen Rabbit and then he dies, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds great. I wonder, I'm sure it, we didn't read it in my house because my mom doesn't like sad books and cries at sad things all the time. It's it's like an it's like an old book. It's, um, okay, I'm trying to figure out what, what the kid had. Now we have to figure out if the kid in the Velveteen. Oh, he had polio. the boy had scarlet fever. Uh, okay, um, but yeah. So at the end, they have to like burn the rabbit, I think, because yeah. it's presumably infected. Yeah. Yeah, but I think what the list of like polio preventative measures is pretty similar to what you might do to prevent any disease, right? Like disinfecting, yeah. burn it. That does kind of remind me of like the early like early COVID measures, right? Where it was kind of like, we don't actually know yet how this is being spread. So like, here are the basic ways we know that diseases tend to be spread. Yeah, literally don't touch anything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, so basically polio comes to Winnipeg in 1916. There's like recurring cases in the years that follow, but it's nothing super severe yet. We're going to be talking about mostly in this episode is what historian Leah Morton calls the epidemic era, because there are six epidemics between 1928 and 1953. Oof, it's a lot. It is. So the first uh, is in 1928 with 434 confirmed cases of polio in Manitoba. Over half were under the age of 10. Oh. So at this point, there had been kind of signs an epidemic might be coming because there had been outbreaks in BC and Alberta the year before. Despite this, health officials in Winnipeg were not prepared when the polio outbreak began here. Shocking. The first cases reported in July and then the Department of Public Health wasn't immediately notified and then they quickly panicked once they learned what was going on. And... um, The head of the organization was Edward Montgomery, who had actually worked for the Board of Health during the 1918 influenza epidemic. And he was, and Estelle Wynne-Jones calls him this in 1918, notable for his absence. Absence. (laughs) So basically, Montgomery just doesn't do anything in the influenza epidemic in 1918, and this continues in 1928. Why did they bring the same guy back? (laughs) I, I don't know. Essentially, the public health department passes the buck on to the medical research committee at the University of Manitoba, Hmm. and they asked them to control and contain and research the epidemic. The issue was that the research committee had been around since like 1922, but hadn't really been funded until the 1928 outbreak, in which place they got $700. Oh, not great. (laughs) So like they're doing their best, but they haven't had funding in years. So they're the ones that are in charge of managing what's going on in Winnipeg. And Hey, Sabrina, that's like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, little heritage field joke for you there. <laughs> Some classic relatable humor. <laughs> okay. Uh, because no one really knew how polio was going to be spreading, they didn't really know who it was going to impact. So their big concern among the medical research committee was that it was going to hit poor communities in Winnipeg Harder, namely sort of North End areas, mm. which does kind of track based on how other diseases had spread in the city. Influenza right. hit the North End particularly hard. Lack of health care was not, it was a real problem for a lot of people. It was hard to afford that. Some people couldn't speak English and doctors wouldn't translate. Mm-hmm. Many reasons why people wouldn't go to a doctor. So the assumption was that the North End was going to be hit hard, and they began essentially contact tracing. Hmm. But the way this worked in 1928 is they would have a big map of the city on a wall, and as a case came up, they'd stick a pin in where it came from and then use that. Right. And the thing they learned, actually, is that polio just spread everywhere. It was not restricted to one neighborhood. Hmm. And... Ideally, what they wanted is once they found out where someone was in a house, they would keep them in that house. Mm -hmm. The issue was the ideal home had to have enough room for cleaning, sunning, and airing once the patient had recovered. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're, say, living in, like, a multi-generational home and sharing rooms, that's actually impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, health inspectors were actually going to the homes of patients to, like, report on the conditions to see what they could figure out. And they would report back on sanitary conditions of the home in the yard about if they could see flies, because for all they were worried the flies might be spreading the disease. Okay. And it's possible they could have been, right? If right. a fly is in poop, essentially, and goes to something else. Right. 
I don't think flies are the biggest sort of transmission issue, but mm-hmm. uh, they also want to see where the family got their food from. If it was from, say, like a grocery store or a market, if the home was detached or part of an apartment complex. And then no one really sort of knew how to figure out why it was going everywhere. Right. So, like, so if I guess, like, probably, you know, the fact that it spread through, like, contaminated food and stuff is probably why, right? Yeah, probably. Um, I asked uh, Alex and I's friend, uh, Kimber, who was actually a scientist, and she thought it may have something to do with plumbing, too. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So there's, like, multiple ways this could have happened, but I think the issue is when your idea of disease sort of correlates with your ideas of poverty. Mm-hmm. Polio is a mystery, by all accounts. Right. No one can explain how this is happening. And due to the uncertainty about how polio was spread, they actually closed schools in the early fall. Mm. Polio generally would only really crop up in the summer. It was sort of like a thing that would appear in, say, May to July and then sort of peter out by October. So did they have to do uh, did they do remote learning and things like were they zooming? (laughs) Yeah, they all hopped on their laptops. <laughs> their old hand cranked laptops <laughs> <laughs> no that's what the younger kids that aren't in school yet they're yeah. cranking the laptop <laughs> you gotta put like the two-year-old in the hamster wheel to yeah. power the house <laughs> for the day <laughs> so severe cases of polio were treated at the king george hospital and um actually hold on i need to go see if it's king george or king edward because i called it one thing in one place until i'm wondering if i got confused <laughs> I think it's King George. Yeah, it's King George. We're good. Okay. I confused myself. <laughs> okay. It's so never basically, before. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so the King George Hospital cared for more severe cases that would require, say, like constant maintenance or supervision. Sort of more severe paralysis might need someone to like help move the limbs or monitor that. But milder cases were supposed to be treated at home, which is why you had to have that special room to like lock the patient away in temporarily. Right. Um, did iron lungs exist at that point? No, not yet. Oh, so you were just kind of like SOL if your breathing was not working. Yes, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Okay. Thankfully, there aren't a lot of cases of that specific or specific type of polio. Mm. So it really becomes more of an issue later on. But throughout all of this time, there's people in Winnipeg trying to figure out what is causing polio and more importantly, how to like slow it or stop it. And what they come up with in 1928 is what's called a a convalescent serum, which is essentially made up of the blood of former polio patients and then administered to current polio patients. Okay. I don't don't know if that would work, but I see the logic. Yeah. There's some debates about how efficient it is the moment it's announced and developed. Mm -hmm. But essentially what it would do is reduce paralysis. Hmm. Like it wasn't meant as a vaccine. It was meant to reduce symptoms. Okay. But the biggest issue with it is that there's a really only short uh, window of opportunity to use it. Once you catch polio, you start to get like a fever and then you have to deliver the serum before paralysis sets in. Before or after, it's not useful. Okay. But also you need to have people who are willing to give blood. Oh, yeah. So it's used pretty sparingly, but uh, convalescent serum was also used to help treat measles. So, like, it was a thing people were doing at the time, and the person who really helped develop it in Manitoba was Fred T. Cadham, who was the head of the research lab. And so he did sort of a study, and on 151 cases of polio, 87% of people received no serum, 
and then 56% of the 87 were paralyzed and another 20% died. Hmm. Of the 57 that received the serum before paralysis, only 7% were affected and there were no deaths. Okay. So it seems like it was kind of effective, but there weren't going to be like large scale studies of this because people were constantly trying to develop new ways to treat polio. Right. And I guess uh, like I have to imagine that like keeping blood was not the easiest thing to do in 1928. No, either. you need a lot of refrigeration. And yeah. Hard to manage. The fun thing I learned about Cadano and looking him up, he was a provincial bacteriologist who'd actually gotten his start uh, in medicine at the age of 12. Oh. As what? a surgeon's assistant. Whoa. Oh, horrifying. <laughs> oh no, imagine going in for a surgery and there's a 12 year old. There's a little boy. <laughs> Holding your organs for you. <laughs> oh, no. Don't give him my organs and his grubby little hands. <laughs> picking his nose with one hand. <laughs> Fixing a wedgie with the other and then yeah. <laughs> putting the liver back in. Yeah. <laughs> he does seem to have been like a competent researcher and scientist in Winnipeg. It's a competent 12-year-old. Okay. <laughs> and probably a more competent grown man, I yeah. would think. But yeah, an interesting start to medicine for this guy. And then um, the outbreak really threw Winnipeg for a huge loop. And Leah Morton's thesis, is it Leah or Leah? Leah. Leah, okay. In uh, Leah Morton's thesis on polio, she stated that the outbreak unsettled Winnipeggers deeply, even though the city was not known for its commitment to health and cleanliness. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very nice way that she put it. (laughs) Yeah, we're dirty and sick all the time is essentially (laughs) what it is. So to give a glimpse of how seriously people were taking this, though, um, Dr. O.J. Day, who was a researcher and doctor with the Children's Hospital, was quoted a year later saying, I don't believe there's any disease that can frighten people so profoundly as polio. And Winnipeg last year incited a terror among them, much like that caused by the air raids during the war. And Day was a decorated veteran who had served in the First World War and fought at Vimy Ridge. Oh, wow. So like saying that polio in 1928 was as scary to people as the war yeah that's i mean that's pretty intense yeah and i think it's probably worthwhile to talk about why polio was so scary we've talked about it being kind of like a mystery Mm -hmm. but polio wasn't exceptionally fatal right so like in 1928 there were 50 deaths for about 434 cases and most of those deaths were specifically from bulbar polio which is the type that will paralyze your lungs But the biggest issue seems to be partially unpredictability, but also that it could impact anyone. Right. So if you are, say, someone in the upper crust and there's like a big influenza outbreak, you can feel relatively safe compared to like the poorer neighborhoods that are going to catch it and probably Mm -hmm. die. But everyone's at risk here. Right. One of the scary parts is that it could impact healthy middle class children. Right. Huh. Yeah. And then also it's sort of tied in with ableism as well, because polio could yeah. and did have a lifelong impact. So if you catch polio and then say suffer paralysis, you might need mobility aids for the rest of your life. That can cause some really drastic lifestyle changes depending on what you need. If you need a wheelchair, you might need say a ramp to get into your house. You might have to move. You can't get into certain buildings now. Yeah. You I mean, that would have been, it would have been a nightmare to be a wheelchair user in like the 1920s. Absolutely. It would have been awful and very I was hard. 
just coincidentally, I was listening to an episode of 99% Invisible where they were talking about like, um, like the ramps that go off curbs that yeah. called curb cuts. And like those didn't exist until like the 70s. Yeah. So you have to sort of hop up over curves and wheelchairs yeah. or you just can't cross the street. Right. And then the secondary issue is that like it's difficult to navigate, but also that it's expensive. Mm-hmm. These tools aren't free. And if you're a child, when you catch polio, you might need new ability aids as you get older. Like you can't use the same wheelchair at 10 as you need at 20. Presumably you will grow out of it. Right. And I guess just the idea too, that it's like so awful and frightening, like that this is the attitude at the time to, to yeah. be disabled, right? That oh yeah. I think, you know, the idea that a disabled person could live kind of a full healthy life was not super present no and they tended people would often look down on disability so in 1937 a orthopedic surgeon angus murray actually argued that people disabled from polio were indolent and thriftless thriftless and are willing to lay down in the arms of social service organizations or municipal organizations and just like lay about i guess Uh. (laughs) yeah that's not good (laughs) no it's not so a lot of polio is tied up with sort of like ableism of the time. And then also it's like crazy unpredictability. Mm-hmm. But as a result of all of this, a lot of the early methods of treating polio are mostly done to actually lessen the impact of paralysis. Okay. And no one really knew how to do this today. You might go to like physio to loosen up your limbs. But what you would do in 1928 is get strapped to a wooden board and not move. What? <laughs> yep. I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't explain. Hmm. <laughs> I think the reason they didn't want to like mess the limbs up further by moving them, but like they would put your leg in a cast and then strap you to a board and then make you stay there. The, Which the remember, you are a child when this happens, presumably. Oh, that's a literal nightmare. It's like when paramedics strap you to a backboard though, right? Like yeah. they don't want anything to get out of place. Yeah. Like maybe that's yeah. like still like the, the most basic way to keep someone safe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess strap- that's what you do for like a broken bone. Yeah. But... Yeah. But you just Not get for an to entire that child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a weird system. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> I think we've all moved past that as a way to like treat any sort of limb issues for the most part. (laughs) But the other option might include something like a spinal infusion or tendon lengthening procedures. And there's not a lot of records in like hospital information on this, but according to like polio patients, surgeries like this were pretty common in the epidemic era to like help manage symptoms. And then after 1928, Winnipeg kind of enjoys a lull for a little bit. And then in 1936, we see the next epidemic breakout. And this time it is the largest we'd seen until that point. It's actually the one of the largest in the country at that point. Okay. And by that, it means there is 539 cases, which is around about 2000 people per 100,000. Right. And like all in all, 1936 is not a good year. Like- No, that wasn't a good time. (laughs) No, it's dry, it's hot, there's a drought, there's a rumbling of a war going on overseas. And like the threat of polio at the time seemed relatively low in 1935. There were only 45 cases. Oh, wow. So that like, really did like explode over the course of a year. Yeah. 
So you can see why people weren't like quite expecting it. And the other issue is that it started in a different location. 1928, it began in Winnipeg. In 1928, it actually began out in the RM of Morton, which is Boys of Ain. <laughs> <laughs> Some cat chaos over there. She jumped directly into two mugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> That's fine. Everyone can know how I'm suffering. The gremlin cat. <laughs> She's a real nightmare. So yeah, um, in 1936, the outbreak begins rurally in Bois and then slowly across 80 other municipalities in the province. Oh. And it begins much like the first time in July, but a assistant epidemiologist from Winnipeg went to Bois to take charge and like look at the situation and then actually implement quarantine rules. But despite this, cases actually rose, and this time they were impacting older children. So the first case in Boys of Ain was a teenage boy, and then a 19-year-old, and then his sister, who was a young teacher. So this time, over 50% of the cases were older than 14. Hmm. So it's changed pretty radically since the first go-around, where it was mostly right. kids under 10. And then it seems to have been kind of unique to that area, because in Winnipeg, cases that you were between kids 5 to 9... Right. And they didn't have to close schools because it was summer. Okay. So they hadn't really talked about that yet, and it will become a more controversial choice as epidemics go on. Mm -hmm. um, There's also sort of an issue where it seemed like the government was more willing to blame parents than shut down oh. schools. Oh. Well, so like one of the things the that... Sorry, go ahead. No, essentially the argument was that, like, oh, it's bad mothers that are doing this, and the schools are not the problem. Like, which is super weird when you don't know what's actually causing it, right? Yeah. Like, how are mothers supposed to pre pre prevent it? But, like, one of the things I remember hearing from my grandpa was that, like, they thought that it had been caught by, like, swimming in different kinds of water. So, like, you weren't supposed to go into, like, swimming holes or yeah. whatever, which is, like, what rural kids spend their whole summer doing. Yeah, totally. So, like, an issue is that, like, you do have to keep your kids inside in the summer, and that's very hard for kids to mm -hmm. be willing to do. But part of it does seem that, like, the province doesn't want to take responsibility for closing schools. Oh, yeah. This but... is not at all relevant right now, Sabrina. <laughs> <Yeah>. Interesting. <laughs> so um, the Griswold School closes, as does schools in Selkirk. They agree to shut down for the fall. But then Nipawa also tries to close. And this time, the deputy minister of health goes to Nipawa and says, no, no, these have to stay open. Oh, so Nipawa schools stay open despite the attempt to close them, and it's not really clear why they did that. Mm -hmm. But there are other issues facing rural Manitoba besides schools, namely that rural Manitobans aren't likely to go to a doctor. This oh, is true yeah. to this day, but especially <laughs> so in the 1930s when it costs money to go to the doctor. Right. And polio treatment wasn't free. And it's the middle of the Depression. Yeah. So people just weren't going until they absolutely had to go. Uh, but the deputy minister, the one who went to Nipawa to say don't close schools, actually pushed municipalities to offer free diagnosis and treatment of polio. Huh. And then some actually agreed to offer che uh, cheaper rates on treatment, which was a small miracle because mm -hmm. the province didn't generally help and it was also in the middle of a depression. Right. But they'd also developed a new form of treatment. Okay. This time, it was a nasal spray. Huh. 
They were going off of the incredibly mistaken assumption that polio was largely spread or contracted through the nose. Oh, okay. The assumption so towards, yeah. <laughs> the assumption was that because it's a disease that impacts the nervous system, the fastest way to that is through your nose. Okay. <laughs> so like the logic is kind of there, but this was discovered or decided on through like tests on chimps. <laughs> Okay. Well, is it? Didn't they used to think that people were uh, mentally ill because of their teeth? So they'd pull out their teeth. I swear I oh, saw goodness. that on. Uh, I mean, on <laughs> that is entirely possible. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah, I saw it was on the. There's this TV show called The Nick that I think that you would both love. Uh, oh yeah, a, I've heard of The Nick. Yeah, it's it's yeah. about the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York at the turn of the. Oh. Uh, century and it's like the invention of medicine basically and clive owen plays this doctor who's like like <laughs> he's insane but he comes up with everything <laughs> um so yeah like you see him like using cocaine uh, for various <laughs> things because it's like yeah you can just get prescription cocaine um yeah but anyways yeah it's it's a Them's was the days yeah <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there was a storyline where like they think this one this one woman whose baby died, uh, they they pull her teeth out because the her baby dying made her uh come over with it. So yeah. Yeah, no, I mean medicine. like early <laughs> early medicine was all around terrible, but I feel like especially for any kind of psychiatric illness. Yeah. Very much so. But yeah, it's a lot of guesswork going on. So for a while, people really roll with this nose theory. Is there anything in the nasal spray? Yeah, so it's a combination. Well, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just air. <laughs> just, just a little puff. <laughs> Blow that polio right out of there. <laughs> so uh, the spray is actually made up of a combination of alum, picric acid, and salt. Okay. I Which know what like one of those is. Yeah. I talked again to Kimber about this, who said that <laughs> in high doses, it was probably going to be toxic, but you weren't really doing that much of it. Mm. But the other end result is that it's not going to be super useful. Okay. And actually, the only thing it really did in Manitoba is that it turned patients' noses yellow. Oh, no. <laughs> Temporarily, but it did. Yeah. And despite all of this and the like uncertainty about it, this was still kind of the only hope people had. So the Winnipeg Free Press actually published the recipe for it. Oh. And then said, don't do this at home. But the oh, recipe is there. <laughs> I can't think of another like instance of that happening. That's bizarre. Right? Make like, your own like, COVID vaccine at home, kid. Yeah, just like DIY up this medicine. And then snort it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is bizarre. We actually did get lucky. Turning our noses yellow was actually pretty mild. Some other nasal sprays put lead in it. Oh, Ooh. oh no. Right up your nose into your and, brain. Uh, <gasps> yeah, so some people actually lost their sense of smell, either temporarily or permanently, as a result of the nasal spray of the 30s. Ugh. It's also in 1936 we see the very first iron lung come to Winnipeg. Okay. Yay. <laughs> kind of. So the iron lung was better known as the drinker respirator. It was developed in 1928 by a guy named Philip Drinker. Today we often think of it in relation to polio, but the way it was developed is actually that it was a project to improve artificial ventilation, specifically because Drinker wanted to reduce the lawsuits against one American gas company from people dying due to accidental gas leaks. 
Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So that's how the iron lung comes about. That's but essentially, weird. it is sort of a giant metal coffin that you can put a patient in and through compression, it will push your lungs in and out. So your, your you head have, kind of sticks out one end, right? Yeah, but only your head. So actually, yeah. because of that, you would need a tracheotomy as well to be in the iron oh, lung. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Surprise, I didn't know that either until I was doing this research. That's crazy. There's, there's a really good episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents where there's a guy in an, <laughs> there's a guy in an iron lung. New, new section of the podcast where Alex describes an episode <laughs> of an old TV show to you. Um, I do that too, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> there's a guy who's in an iron lung and his wife is like cheating on him pretty blatantly while he's in this iron lung. And so, um, but I think it turns out that like the guy that she's having an affair with is actually the like paid assassin. So. <laughs> oh, Hitchcock. She, she tries to kill him, but then he ends up killing her, and it's a dead wife, as in every Hitchcock episode. Has any <laughs> other filmmaker hated wives as much as Alfred Hitchcock hates wives? Just Disney. <laughs> yeah. Every mom is dead in a Disney movie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It's a good iron lung anecdote. Yeah, essentially... <laughs> This is a relatively new technology that, like, if you caught bulbar polio, this would then keep your lungs moving. In a normal case, without an iron lung, you'd probably be dead within five days. Because Ugh. you just can't breathe. Right. So this is a huge life-saving thing. The issue is they're expensive. And there's not many of them. Mm -hmm. So the first one comes to Winnipeg in 1935, and it's in the municipal hospital, much like everything else to do with polio. And it's actually constantly in use in 1936 from one woman who was named Winnipeg's Iron Lung Girl. Oh. <laughs> so her actual name is Inez Woolham. She is hospitalized in 1936 at the age of 22 years old due to respiratory paralysis. And when she was admitted and she actually couldn't speak, eat, and could barely breathe, and she was pretty much entirely paralyzed. Wow. And she was the first iron lung patient in Winnipeg. Which is why she gets the nickname, the Iron Lung Girl. Right. And yeah, essentially you were sealed in from the neck down and then the machine pushes air in and out of you. And Ulam spends a long, long time in this machine. But after 10 weeks in, a reporter asks her how she's enjoying it. <laughs> and she replied, it's pretty nice, but I'd rather be out and about, of course. <laughs> that is, uh, that's such a like wonderful understatement. <laughs> Willem seems to be just like a very polite and genial person. Aww. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a much cheerier response than I would give if I were in an iron lung. Also imagine being in there for 10 weeks and someone be like, are you having fun? Are you enjoying yeah. this experience? <laughs> but jeez. Oh, um, Willem was actually a stenographer from St. Boniface and she had at the time been living with her family and a dog named Bob. And she had been engaged, but after um, a year in the iron lung, her engagement ring couldn't fit on her fingers because she'd lost so much weight. Oh. At which point she starts taping it on. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bummer mixed with like some vaguely sweet anecdotes because she does become mm. kind of like a charming local celebrity. Mm. So people come to visit, people write her cards. 
Oh, that's and nice. she makes a decent amount of friends through like people wanting to say hello and make sure she's doing okay. Yeah. But um by nineteen thirty-seven, there's actually a much smaller outbreak of polio in the city, and people needed the iron lung. By this point, Wollum was well enough that she could go out for a bit. So she actually kind of rotated iron lungs, making sure everyone else could use them who needed them. Huh. Yeah. But she also couldn't walk or like go outside yet. So she would just go to other beds, essentially. Right. And throughout all of this, there is a debate about how to pay for her care because this is not, there's no socialized health care. This costs money. Yeah. So there, at first, the city of St. Boniface agrees to help pay. And there's a rumor that they might give up paying and force the family to pay for her care and people protest. Right. Oh. I mean, who can who can pay for round-the-clock iron, iron lung use, right? That's Yeah. And the thing is, with iron lungs, it's not clear how long you'd be in it for. Like, some people might be in it for, like, months to years or maybe indefinitely. Mm-hmm. There's no way to know. So, thankfully, the city of St. Boniface agrees to fund her care long-term, as does the city of Winnipeg, and then actually private donors... Mm-hmm and community fundraisers start to come to also help pay for Willem's care. Mm-hmm. And then actually the Winnipeg Kalani's Club buys her her own respirator in 1937. There's a benefit softball game held for her with the uh, Norwood Collegiate and St. Boniface Athletics League. Oh, that's nice. It's at the Osborne Stadium and they raise $125. Oh. And uh, the Norwood team beat St. Boniface, if anyone cares. <laughs> <laughs> good <laughs> yeah maybe and then, i don't know which i don't know which team we're cheering for but yeah. <laughs> no i don't know who i'm allied with here <laughs> all money for a good cause it's all fun yeah. <laughs> and they also hold a theatrical performance to help raise money for her care as well but oh we've frozen there we go <laughs> my sister is watching smallville with her friend upstairs so the internet <laughs> a little slower <laughs> so the recurring sort of tragedy of this, though, is that the press keeps coming back to talk to Woolham or her parents, and they keep saying the hope she'll be out soon. And then it just never happens. Oh, no. Oh, really? Yeah. Gosh. But one of the other sort of weirder things I found is that uh, James Durbin, who is the father of Winnipeg celebrity Deanna Durbin, organized a private screening for one of his daughter's movies in the late 1930s. It's like, Deanna Durbin was an up-and-coming star who was, like, she started out with Judy Garland. Right. So a prominent celebrity, and and as Willem got a private screening. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's like that kid who was going to die before seeing The Phantom Menace, and so they broke into (laughs) Lucasfilm, and and then they made a movie about it called Fanboys. Aw. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that, basically. It's just like that. (laughs) This is just like Fanboys. (laughs) <laughs> fanboys with the girl in the iron lung oh, just a, a different movie <laughs> it's like Kristen bell instead of like dressing up like leia she's in an iron lung <laughs> oh no and she's just like rolled around from scene to scene in the iron lung <laughs> oh jeez i'd still watch it <laughs> yeah yeah so um where was i now I've gotten distracted by this concept of a different movie. (laughs) (laughs) I think you mean the same movie, Sabrina. Yeah. Yeah. So I think think the filmmakers, the filmmakers buying fanboys have a lawsuit ahead of them. (laughs) It's fine. It's whatever. 
So also going on by like the end of 1936, there's a whole polio symposium held where they start talking about if nasal sprays are effective or not. And no one knows. There's no agreement. Right. And actually Fred Cadam is still working. He's still around and he's still using the serum, but he even admitted like the only thing that was going to cure polio would be a vaccine. Right. And there is development of vaccines going on across North America. So there'd been some attempt by 1936, which was like a killed vaccine created by uh, Maurice Brody, who was Canadian at the New York Department of Public Health. And then there was a different type in Philadelphia. And then both were just ineffective because no one really knew what was going on with polio. It's funny. I feel like with the history of medicine, there's kind of like a transition from like medicine that was actively harmful to just like mainly ineffective to like, okay, now we're actually helping people. Yeah, it's like, this is dangerous and bad to your noses might turn yellow to we got it now, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like this is kind of when we're passing, we're in like ineffective right now, but we're getting, we're getting We're getting closer to the finish line. But thankfully, Winnipeg passes much of the rest of the 1930s without another case of polio. And then we hit another epidemic in 1941. And this time there are 930 cases. Ugh. Holy jeez. So we're up from 500 from the last big epidemic. Yeah. And the outbreak begins in late spring. And it sort of is in many ways much like the others, but there's two distinct differences, namely the arrival of an Australian nurse named Sister Elizabeth Kenny and actually a separate outbreak of encephalitis, oh, which is no. brain inflammation. So there is a double outbreak going on in Manitoba in the 19, uh -oh. or 1941. And actually researchers from both Yale and the, Amer and the American Surgeon General come to Manitoba to see what's going on. Oh, <laughs> oh no. But That's pretty bad. There's a lower death rate despite the high case number. Oh, okay. Who knows why? Right. Like, <laughs> it's a mystery disease. How fun. Yeah. So the really interesting part of this is actually specifically Elizabeth Kenny. So she's an Australian nurse who was largely self-trained because she'd grown up in the bush, essentially. And hmm. we talked about how, like, to treat polio, you'd strap people to a board. Right. Kenny was coming into it differently because her approach is more like what we see today, which was hot packs and actually moving the limbs. To Revolutionary. Like yeah. But this was controversial huh. in the 1940s. So, like, she does a huge speaking tour in North America, and not everyone agrees. Hmm. So she comes to Winnipeg in 1941 and sort of radicalizes how the city is going to be handling things and all of that. Cool. And then she leaves North America in 1957 or 1947 and dies in 1952. But actually, there's even a movie made about her while she's still alive starring Ros Rosalind Russell. Hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't know so who that is. <laughs> she's like an old 1940s actress. Okay. But there's a whole woman while she's still alive so she's like an interesting presence to come to town and Winnipeg is fully on board with this I think we've tried so many other things there's like yeah. fine we'll do this now the big catch is that the Kenny method is a lot of work like strapping someone to a board is a pretty one and done job <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess right? so but like if you're trying to have to like simulate limbs and move them that's a lot yeah. more work for nurses who are already like significantly overworked especially during outbreaks yeah now and then and it's more emotional labor too because you have to help coach these people through mm. these things yeah 
Nurses are also caring for the iron lungs, maintaining that, loading patients in and out, administering hot packs to patients, and then doing all of the hygiene necessary. Oh, well, yeah. That would include stuff like washing and even burning sheets. Right. And not all of the nurses were trained about this when they had started, so they had to learn as they went. Oh, jeez. So it's stressful both for the nurses and also for the people who were going into the hospital. Mm-hmm. Parents were getting increasingly worried about sending their kids away to the polio ward where they could spend months to years, depending on the case. Mm-hmm. And actually, a Tribune reporter takes a tour of the children's hospital to reassure parents. So are parents not allowed to visit? Is that part of this? or They can visit, but like they're going to be there alone. Oh, yeah, I guess right? for the most part, eh? yeah. So according to the Tribune, um, on August 5th, there were 67 city and 33 country cases of definite infantile paralysis. But with many of them, the disease is of a mild form and the majority have no traces of paralysis. All of them, however, will be checked over by experts in physiotherapy before the eagerly awaited trip home. And then in one word, the reporter found a teary-eyed boy chanting, I want to go home, I want to go home. And a nurse told the reporter, he'll be all right when he's here a little longer. These youngsters are excellent patients. Oh, poor kids. Not particularly reassuring. It sounds very rough to be a kid. Yeah. Dealing with this. It's also in 1941 that Inez Wollum gets a friend. Oh, I I can't I can't decide if that's good. I know it's debatable. So essentially, what happens is Lena Barker, who is a 19-year-old from Oakville contracts paralytic polio and is placed in the iron lung at the hospital in the same uh, room as Woolham. And Barker and Woolham become essentially best friends. This should be a movie. That's so cute. So uh, Lena liked to read a lot. So they actually had set up a book above her iron lung that she could move with a pulley on her lung to turn the pages. Because she didn't really have much use of her hands, so she couldn't turn them manually. Mm-hmm. And she liked to read mystery novels and all sorts of stuff like that. Eventually, she thought mystery novels were too easy because she could always guess the ending. <laughs> <laughs> but Barker seems to have been a little bit more like jovial mm-hmm. compared to Woolham, but both seem to be like a bright spot for all the nurses in the hospital because multiple people remembered them being like fun people to go visit. Aww. In fact, actually, a nurse that cared for uh, Barker specifically mentioned Barker in her obituary when she died, like, decades later. Hmm. And at this point... I mean, I guess, you know, she had been there for how long at this point? A a long time. Uh, Yeah, about five years. Yeah. And this is Barker's first year, but she'd also remained there for some time. But they're now Winnipeg's Iron Lung Girls. It's (laughs) pluralized now. Oh, dear. So despite uh, Willem and Barker being kind of like a pleasant spot for nurses, it was still a lot going on. And we did face a nursing shortage in 1941. And part of this is that um, nurses sort of aged out of the system pretty early on because nurses around 1940 were unmarried women. Hmm. And the assumption was once you got married, you'd stop being a nurse. Was that a rule or was it like a social expectation? I think social expectation, but kind of like the way like teachers also had to be unmarried. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've never quite understood. That means that women. No, I don't know. I think it's like your priority should be the home, but then 
if people keep marrying out of your job. It's not might, ideal. Might just be an issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in 1941, the hospital gets a student nurses, volunteers, and retired nurses, which means married women who agree to come back to work temporarily. Mm. And then other women help volunteer. A uh, woman with the volunteer bureau who did like war work would also help um, like visit unmarried mothers and take care of stuff like that. And then most of this work was done without pay. Oh, geez. This is just people volunteering. <laughs> I mean, good for them, but oh boy. Yeah. That's a well, lot to go. be doing without being paid. So luckily for Winnipeg, we found enough nurses to get by in 1941. And then there'd be a number of years between 1941 and the next outbreak, which crops up in 1947, which is mostly unremarkable. Mm -hmm. There's 587 cases, seven deaths. There's fewer paralytic cases than normal. It's relatively mild, but there is also a nursing shortage again. Oh, geez. This time they get volunteer nurses from the emergency nursing committee, which forms in early August. And then the new Kenny method leads to a shortage in blankets because they needed them for the hot compresses they were using to treat people. Ah. But also around this, people start debating whether or not to close schools. Mm. At this point, uh, Fred Cadam's son, Roper Cadam, is now part of the city of Winnipeg's public health department. He's the sort of officer there. And he told the city and the school board that closures didn't make sense as it had never been established that polio was ever communicated from one person to another. <laughs> so, huh. hmm. so this is especially bizarre because about a decade earlier, there had been a sort of overall consensus that polio was a, commu a communicable disease. I mean, how else does he think it's happening? <laughs> I think he just doesn't want to close schools. Yeah. What does that sound yeah, like? I guess. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. But there is sort of just an overall lack of clarity and consistency with public health advice. So like by this time they were talking about closing pools because they were worried about consuming infected water, which could mm -hmm. also happen. But people knew that could happen and the city just wouldn't close the pools down. So people just weren't going to them. Weird. But I also have these safety recommendations given out in 1947. Okay. Are these a little different now? They're a little different. Um, it is see that children avoid overexertion. Mm. Avoid use of water for drinking, swimming, or washing utensils that may be contaminated. Avoid unnecessary contact with other people. Keep children away from crowds. Keep clean, clean food, clean milk, and clean hands. Destroy flies in their breeding places and avoid injury or irritation of the mucous membranes of the nose. Oh, okay. They're still on the nose thing. Right. And we're still, it still feels a little bit like, uh, but like, <laughs> there's a few, there's a few things here that are maybe a little more specific or, yeah. I mean, I think saying avoid use of like contaminated water. Is right. A big like we're on 19... the right track there. Yeah. We're getting it. Yeah. But 1947 isn't all that exceptional for the most part. It's a fairly tame outbreak. It's the same old, same old. Everyone's tired. Mm -hmm. No one knows what they're doing. Mass panic. I feel like we should have figured some of this stuff out by this point. You would think, but <laughs> like even across North America, people are still sort of grappling with this. There were maybe right. stronger ideas outside of Winnipeg because people had agreed that you could catch polio from other people. 
by 1947. It's weird that. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm more just like we should have figured out that like, hey, maybe we should have nurses. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, have we figured that out today? No, no. Oh, jeez. At the risk of being too on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> So the next outbreak I'm going to talk about isn't actually based in Winnipeg or Manitoba, but it's worth talking about still. So healthcare across Canada, both in 1948 and now, is not exactly equal, and areas in northern Canada really suffer from this. Mm -hmm. So people from northern Canada often come to Winnipeg for treatment. We see this in stuff like tuberculosis, influenza, even today for stuff like cancer treatments. Yeah. So in 1948-1949, uh, there is an outbreak in Chesterfield Inlet, which is in Nunavut. Mm -hmm. And the company had begun as a Hudson's Bay company a depot. And it was a pretty like bustling place by the 1940s. It actually had a three-story hospital, which was one of the biggest buildings in the Canadian Arctic at the time. And polio wasn't really a concern up north for the most part until 1948, when a man named Tutu became a passive carrier and then sort of wandered around mm. northern Canada accidentally spreading it. Jeez. At which point the outbreak reaches Chesterfield Inlet in 1949. Of the 275 people at risk, 50% developed it, 12% became paralyzed, and 5% died. Wow. So yeah. Oh, that's un devastating. Untreated, this can like ravage communities. Yeah. So in March of 1949, five doctors go from Winnipeg to Chesterfield Inlet to investigate and see if it really was polio. They return a few days later with 13 Inuit polio patients suffering from paralysis who were all treated here at the King George Hospital. Among them were a 45-year-old man and six were under 12. Hmm. Uh, at the time- That would be so it, scary, just like as a kid. To not be only whisked to have, away. Yeah, but like also to have polio and then just be, yeah, whisked away to somewhere you've never been before. And also there's a good chance that these children probably weren't fluent or spoke English. Yeah. Uh, so the physiotherapist at the time was a woman named Connie Beatty, who was actually in the midst of preparing to go up to Chesterfield Inlet herself. So she worked with the patients here in Winnipeg and then would fly up later to work in Chesterfield Inlet for the summer of 1949. And these weren't the first Inuit patients to come out to Winnipeg. That was kind of a recurring thing as cases would crop up. So Mark Kaluak had arrived in Winnipeg in 1948. He was six and he was one of the kids who was receiving physiotherapy and he would later say all it did was annoy him. <laughs> he did not enjoy this experience one bit. Well, Which is such fair. a kid thing to say, right? I know. <laughs> like they made me move my legs. Ugh. It's a very yeah. charming little complaint. <laughs> but there was actually an interpreter at the hospital to help translate between the Inuit patients and the doctors. Oh, nice. And for a while, there were other Inuit patients with him. And then a little bit later on in 1949, he was told there were going to be new patients coming from Chesterfield Inlet. And then they just never arrived. Oh. So on August 22nd, the Toronto Star reports that the plane carrying the patients, the Canso, had crashed. Oh, gosh. Somewhere in northern Manitoba. And all of the patients on board had died. This includes Connie Beatty, who was returning home after a summer serving up north. And then all of the eight Inuit patients on board, which included uh, Ublarek, Ahotuk, and then a number of other young women named um, Hillary, Arnaluk, Tikowak, Agayaluk, Kapi, Anaktosi, and Angmalik. 
all of whom were relatively young. There were a couple of older patients, but there were no survivors. Oh, that's really sad. It's not really known entirely what happened. The details were sort of, it's, it's a real bummer. The, it does get worse. Oh no. As a heads up. So the um, white patients, namely BD, the crew, and the four federal transportation officers that were with them were all sent back to their respective hometowns and buried. Mm-hmm. All of the Inuit patients were buried in a mass grave at Norway House. Oh, that's awful. And the families weren't told. Oh, no. So the bodies were laid to rest according to, like, traditions in Norway House. They got kind of a proper oh, burial. Yeah, that's something at least, but... Gosh, can you imagine, like, your family members are just taken away, and then, It took 60 years for them to find out what happened. Wow. Like, one of the relatives tracks down the gravesite in 2007. (sighs) And that is the first anyone finds out about what happens to the relatives. Oh, my goodness. Like, one family had tried, had gone with the assumption that maybe, like, their niece had survived... And had like escaped and was just like living somewhere else and that's why mm-hmm. she hadn't come home and then they find out much later on that's not true at all yeah not knowing for that long would just be awful it's it's so sad and so devastating yeah so it's a particularly tragic sort of part of polio history in manitoba mm-hmm. it's not something i had ever heard of either no no never but this also means that mark Kaluak is still alone at king george hospital Oh, yeah. And he is there from when he is six to when he turns 10. Wow, that's a long time. That is four years away from his home. And as a kid especially, that's, you know, that's half his life almost. And it's not like his family can fly out to visit. Mm -hmm. You said there was an interpreter there at least? Yeah, so we could talk to people and he actually did learn English while he was at the hospital. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Which wound up actually serving him really well. When he returned home, he actually became a um, translator for the Nunavut government. Oh, cool. So he's actually, or he passed away, but he was a translator, teacher, cultural consultant, and author, and he became a member of the Order of Canada in 1990 and was the first recipient of the Order of Nunavut. Oh, neat. Yeah. But he also got to see some excitement during his stay in Winnipeg because he was here for four years from 1948 until about 1952, which means he was here when the flood happened. (laughs) (laughs) We love the flood. We always do. (laughs) So the 1950 flood happens and it costs millions of dollars in damages and the Red River spills over the banks everywhere, which includes near the municipal hospital because that is right alongside the river, which means the hospital is evacuated, including the iron lung patients. Oh no. So Barker and Willem get to go outside for the first time in years. <laughs> and I mean, they, hmm. <laughs> yeah, they actually go to stay at the Deer Lodge Hospital, and both of them seemed excited to be outside and also excited that young, handsome soldiers had to carry them out. Aw, it's so <laughs> cute. I can't get over them. <laughs> um, though I also do feel like they probably could have been taken outside at some point. Yeah, I mean, I suspect now it might be easier. Yeah. But it's difficult when you, like, can't, like, walk well. Yeah. Or walk at all, or you have to sit in an iron lung. By this point, Woolen could be out for a few hours at a time, and Barker was getting close to that. Mm -hmm. But it was still not enough to, like, go home. Right. And then in 1951, Woolen dies at 36 after a bout of influenza. And at this point, she'd spent 15 years in the hospital. Wow. 
Uh, at this point, she had regained some function in her hands and was writing letters. Oh, Frida. <laughs> she closed my window. There's chaos at Sabrina's house right now. This is my life every day. <laughs> so in 1951, Willem had frequent guests and like parents and friends and nurses. She actually frequently called a polio patient from the States who was the first iron lung patient in Chicago. They were friends and they'd call each other from time to time. And after Woolen passed away, Barker actually kept her uh, stuffed leopard called Nero and kept it on her bedside table. Aww. And then Barker passed away five years later in 1956. Hmm. And there's some bizarre coincidence about them because they were both um, hospitalized and spent 15 years in the hospital and both were 36 when they died. Wow. Hmm. Weird. That's young. Yeah. And then, yeah, they were small-scale Winnipeg celebrities for the entirety of those years. Like, the paper mm. checks them on them pretty frequently. They have visitors. People write them letters. They get Christmas cards. They're they're my fun little kind of bright spot. Yeah, that's they're, nice. I Like, I'm glad that, you know, people visited them and that, um, you know, at least it was made sort of semi-pleasant for them. Yeah. It can't have been, can't have been all that nice to be in an iron lung that long, but it seems no, like they definitely made the best not. of it. And they were best friends. Yeah. <laughs> so the next big outbreak in Winnipeg is in 1952. And this time there's just under a thousand cases of polio. And this time we've got kind of an idea of how polio works. Wow. <laughs> we're still debating on if polio can be spread in 1952 mm-hmm. in Winnipeg. This was a public really? consensus everywhere else in 1937. And we're like, jeez. Oh, is it? <laughs> and probably what that was is because communicable diseases were paid for by the government. Oh. And if the disease wasn't communicable. I'm communicable. loving this conspiracy theory. I, I mean, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. No, I think, I think you might be they right. didn't want to pay. And then probably also to stop school closures. Right. But in 1952, uh, Winnipeg keeps schools open, but other areas are of Hem and Hall and some will close. But 1952 actually begins in Winkler. Oh. And it peaks in the summer, and at this point there's no reason to cancel school, but public places like the Bible Camp were closed. And they actually did sort of limit travel to the area. They didn't go so far as to stop it, but they tried to discourage it. But the other big outbreak in 1952 is at the Air Force Base in Rivers. And that was handled very differently. Like, the moment they had a case, they shut the base down. Oh. No visitors in, no visitors out. And then they also shut down the military base in Shiloh. So, like, people couldn't leave, courses were canceled, and they sort of waited it out. And it was only mm-hmm. two other RMs that canceled classes. Hmm. And probably the reason it was handled differently is that the Air Force Base is federal territory. Yeah. So the province has no say in how that's handled. Right. But the other exciting thing that happens in the 1950s is the development of gamma globulin. Gamma who? <laughs> it All sounds right, like a Spider-Man sounds, villain. Sounds sexy. Let's hear what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's not too different than like the convalescent serum. So it's okay. basically a blood-like serum that was developed during the war. It was sort of an experiment on how blood worked. And it could be used as a preventative for like mumps and measles and hepatitis. So the theory was that it could be used to help prevent polio. Mm-hmm. Toronto's Connaught Laboratory develops it for, like, around $67,000. Wow. It wasn't, like, widely available in 1952, but this is, like, really early development, and this is sort of the, like, big hope, is that this could Mm -hmm. help cure or at least treat polio. 
So essentially the difference between gamma globulin in a vaccine is what they're made of. So a vaccine is made up of a dead small amount of the disease itself. It'll let your body build up its own antibodies to it. What gamma globulin does is gives you someone else's antibodies. Oh. Right. Weird. So essentially like it might temporarily boost your immune system, but it's the difference between like if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. And oh, if you yeah. teach a man to fish, he'll eat forever. Right. So your body's it's, not creating its own antibodies. It's borrowing someone else's. Right. That's so super it's interesting. A, yeah. And by 1952, the costs associated with polio were beginning to change. In the 1940s, the province paid for three weeks of hospitalization. In the 50s, the province paid for the full cost with respirators and then otherwise paid for 21 days of hospitalization. Hmm. And then they would resume coverage on the 91st day of hospitalization. Yeah, government policies are just always weird. So if you are... <laughs> Between 21 and 91 days, you were paying for that, but then past that point, they'd pick it up again. So if you only have polio for a little bit, or if you have it for a really <laughs> long time, you're good. <laughs> but a medium length of time is the worst option in terms of payment plans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and for a while, the province actually agreed to pay for one set of crutches or braces for kids, but then actually uh, the Crippled Children's Society took it over in 1952. Mm. There's also a couple of like other fundraising initiatives going on at the time to raise money for polio treatment, including a group called the March of Dimes, which was an American organization that tried I to think combat. They still exists. They still exist. Are they the ones who collect like soda pop tabs? I think so. What I they might did. Be that up. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Um, it's just your well, weird did... old coworker collecting soda pop tabs. <laughs> Someone's lying to you, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> So what the March of Dimes did in 1952 is they made uh, miniature piggy banks shaped like iron lungs. Oh, they that's kind it... of cute and kind of weird. Yeah, and they placed it in like stores. Okay. And the tagline was help them work and play again. Okay. I don't know how much they raised through doing that, but if you were shopping in 1952, you might have been able to put money in a miniature iron lung. <laughs> There's also a nurse's shortage again. No. <laughs> Oh. <sighs> Winnipeg and this time there's an increasing sentiment that the reason nurses aren't volunteering to work is because they're afraid of catching polio right but also in 1952 they said to pay with nurses finally okay but Good. it's a bonus and not like a wage <laughs> bizarre so volunteer nurses got a bonus but no like full-time wage and right Minimum wage for women at the time was about 55 cents an hour. And they struggled to find nurses, I think, for obvious reasons. Yeah. And then, like most outbreaks, winter comes around, polio cases stop, and Manitoba's like, okay, we've got a few years before the next one. Except not this time. Oh, no. <laughs> this time there's an outbreak the next year in 1953. Ugh. So, like, the way it's worked before is that it's an outbreak, and then, like, a lull, and then an outbreak. So... The assumption was it'd have some, like, breathing room. Mm -hmm. And they just don't. Yeah. So no one's prepared when cases begin to spread in 1953. It's Manitoba's worst outbreak with 2,200 cases. Yeah. So for contrast, uh, the first outbreak only, around had four, only had around 480. Mm -hmm. And there's also 85 deaths, which is a pretty oh, high toll. Yeah. 
And this time, adults are more impacted than children. Okay. And we see similar problems as the previous ones. There's lack of room in hospitals, understaffed wards, and no like strong preventative measures. The other issue that is cropping up increasingly is that iron lungs um, are sort of becoming, there's a shortage of iron lungs, essentially. Mm-hmm. So at the King George Hospital, there's 100 beds in 1953. 25 of them are still in use from polio patients from previous years. Oh, wow. The hospital finds another 200 beds at multiple hospital buildings, and the children's hospital opens up an additional 40. 185 patients needed iron lungs in the uh a Royal Canadian Air Force had to fly us in more in 1953. Wow. And at this point, the nursing shortage becomes incredibly dire. Ah, oh, jeez. Because you need people to monitor iron lungs, to transfer people, and do all of that incredibly hard work. Yeah. And they're and trying to do... you need to pay people to do that, like, yeah. crazy concept. Well, they're still rolling with the idea that they're afraid of catching polio, so this time, nurses are offered shots of gamma globulin. Okay. But it's not particularly enticing, and the officials are mm-hmm. still really dragging their heels on how to compensate nurses fairly. Yeah. So the municipal hospital offers a bonus of $12 for every five days of work, but only for registered nurses. Other nurses received $8 every five days, and all others received 6 Hmm. So, like, assuming you were working for the minimum wage of 55 cents an hour, an average wage for that amount of work would be $22 a week if you worked a regular eight-hour shift. Okay. But nurses were working longer hours, often through holidays. Mm -hmm. And other hospital workers, something like a sanitation worker, wasn't getting extra pay despite it being a workplace hazard. Right. And it's just, like, dangerous and, like, emotionally draining, traumatizing work, too. So Lillian McKenzie, who's the director of public health nursing, writes a a letter to Roper Cadam, who's still working. (laughs) The Cadham family is a recurring thing throughout all of this. <laughs> and Mackenzie lays out that there are 26 nurses working at a gamma globulin clinic from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. And the other 13 public nurses were working at the hospital. Or they were pregnant or sick. Huh. And this letter is ignored. Oh, it is. And a city official actually writes back to ask Mackenzie what she means by actually working, implying that nurses were refusing to work. Weird. But of the 48 registered public health nurses, 47 of them were working throughout this. And, like, working at a clinic from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. is a ludicrously long shift. Oh, that's horrifying. And then there is a smaller controversy in this in that nurses' pay actually doubled. So both the city and the municipal hospital had sent out overtime paychecks, and only one of them was meant to. And oh. none, of the, none of the nurses questioned it. They just took yeah. the money. Which, I mean, why not? I mean, of course. Yeah. And then despite, like, nurses having an awful job at the time, city officials actually accused nurses of theft <sighs> for taking the checks. And uh, Leah Morton says that it was likely because neither group wanted to take responsibility for paying the nurses that the issue got ignored. Yeah. And then there was a bit of a scarier situation going on in 1953 as well. So Mary Shepard was at this point the superintendent of nursing. And in 1953, at the peak of the epidemic, there was a power outage at the hospital. Oh, no. So iron lungs were powered by electricity. Mm -hmm. 
1953, there are 92 people on a respirator at once and then 180 total over the course of it. And if the power goes out, what do you do? I, I have literally no idea. <laughs> you um, operate it manually. Is that a thing you can do? <laughs> it is, but it takes three people. Oh, geez. So multiply that by like what? 90. You said 90 people yeah. in iron lungs. That's a lot of that's a lot of people. Yeah. So you need one person to work the bellows of the machine to like actually manually press the air. Someone has to watch the pressure gauge and someone has to watch the patient to make sure the tracheotomy tube isn't getting blocked. There were not enough people required to help. Yeah. So employees from other wards rush in, leaving just like skeleton crews behind everywhere else. But it actually isn't just hospital workers who come in. People from the area come by as well, like neighbors show up to help pump the bellows and monitor gauges and provide lights. Oh, nice. Yeah. But also it was apparently, according to Shepard, just bedlam in the hospital because it was way too many people in the ward all of a sudden trying to monitor everything with flashlights alone. Right. I mean, that's like, what, like 300 people almost, plus all the patients. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. And the words weren't, like, roomy. Yeah. So just, like, chaos. So ignoring all of the stuff with, like, a nursing controversy, gamma globulin on its own is proving to be a bit of an issue in 1953. Okay. So essentially, it's, like, really concentrated blood. It's difficult to make, and it's a heavily regulated substance. And just to like give you an idea of how bad Manitoba was in 1953, we got one third of the federal supply. Oh, geez. So initially what happened is from June to July, kids seven to 11 received it. And then um, household contacts got it later and they started to include nurses in August. So is this being treated like essentially like a vaccine? Is that the idea? Similar. The idea was that- Like it's it, preventative? Yeah, kind of. Which it's kind of not, I'll, we'll talk about why it didn't work we talk about actual vaccines. Okay. <laughs> but at the time, people just thought this was going to help and it was going to be kind of a cure. Also, the only clinic for it was in, the, was in a building at the municipal hospital. So there's one place to go to get it. Right. Jesus. And because of the scarcity, people sort of think the government is deliberately withholding it, which isn't true. Oh, yeah. But there's also rumors that there's a black market version of it going on for $25 a bottle. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, don't buy black market blood. Well, some people do actually start to make like a snake oil version of it because they come in glass bottles, which are then recycled behind the hospital. Oh. If you rummage through the recycling, you can find those bottles and resell it. Ugh. There's not much else going on with it. We're like right near where a vaccine would be created. So gamma globulin is sort of a short-lived phenomenon in the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, also at this point in 1953, Alan John Simpson contracts polio which leaves him paralyzed and he uses a real wheelchair for the rest of his life. But he actually managed the first Pan Am wheelchair games in 1967. Oh, cool. Yeah. Easy. He was also a director of the Independent Living Resource Center and was a member of the Order of the Buffalo Hunt in Order of Canada. Hmm. Uh, pools still aren't closed in 1953 also. Uh, people Weird. just don't go to them. And then youth sporting events are canceled and theaters don't let kids in. <laughs> oh, okay. Huh. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that actually was not canceled was the opening of the Winnipeg Stadium on August 15th because there had been a scheduled game between the Bombers and the Ottawa Rough Riders. 
And we like, <laughs> we couldn't miss that. <laughs> oh, no, um, it was a sold out house. Everyone came. Oh, and the dear. bombers won. <laughs> Great. So everything's fine. There's no issues. <laughs> but probably the most noteworthy thing in 1953 is the way sort of community members pulled together to sort of raise funds for polio prevention and like easing how hard it was to be hospitalized. So children actually made lemonade stands across the city and they raised $2,800. Wow. That's wow. more than that These... first charity game did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, there's a number of kids who are setting things up across the city. Others are selling vegetables. Um, two children start playing their violins at a downtown street corner and raise three hundred and seventy-four dollars. Wow. Some kids are holding little fundraisers and making like forty bucks in a go. Jeez. The Manitoba Junior Red Cross fundraised to buy a new iron lung for the hospital, which is around a thousand dollars. Uh, potato farmers in Manitoba donated 100,000 pounds of potatoes to garden, uh, gardening co-ops, and then Aww. they sold bags for our 10-pound bags for 30, 33 cents to raise money for a new iron lung. There's another uh, drive. That for... feels like a very Manitoba charity drive. We're selling yeah. potatoes, potatoes for charities. <laughs> <laughs> a 10-pound bag for 33 cents? Hey, can't Nothing go wrong. Is... Nothing to scoff at there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the West Kildonan and Kiwanis Club had an Operation Polio Drive where a member each week would, or a member each day would go out as a little health inspector and give out pamphlets and sanitary measures to prevent polio. And they'd actually go around and try and survey sources of polluted water and garbage. Hmm. And then the Prince Edward branch of the Royal Canadian Legion sponsored an Iron Lung Show which had Winnipeg's best musical talent of the Winnipeg Auditorium. Okay, I was picturing, like, when you said Iron Lung Show, like a car show, where what you're showing <laughs> is... The newest in Iron Lung technology. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the 55 Lung? Oh, yeah, that thing's real... It's like the T-bird of... Uh... <laughs> the mileage on this. Yeah. <laughs> no, how it's many, like how a... many breaths to the gallon do you get on this thing? <laughs> So this was just a music show, essentially. So the MC was Herb Stein, who was a CGOB radio announcer. The Legionnaires Orchestra played, as did uh, Soprana, Olga Irwin, the Delta Rhythm Boys. Daryl Moss, a roller skater, performed. There were also, like, acrobats, pianists, a contortionist. Well, that sounds fun. Yeah, like, a number of things were going on. It seemed like a fun time. And on a smaller scale, too... Um, Patients at the King George Hospital started a Merry Menders Club, which had its own orchestra in a newspaper called the Flickers. And uh, wheelchair-bound patients would uh, actually go read to iron lung patients, and they would have wheelchair square dances in the hospital. Oh, <laughs> that's fun. And then they would organize movie nights for iron lung patients where they would just project the movie onto the ceiling because you can't sit them up. Right. Oh, that's so nice. they would, Yeah. So there's efforts going on to sort of alleviate how bad it is going on. And I think mm -hmm. community spirit comes through across all of this. Yeah. But outside of Manitoba by this point, they're putting a lot of effort into finding a way to treat and cure polio. Mm -hmm. And probably the most relevant to us are the Salk vaccine and the Sabin vaccine. So the Salk vaccine is probably the one people know about more. It was released mm -hmm. first developed by Jonas Salk in 1952 to 53, and it went into vaccine trials in 1953. 
There were Canadian <laughs> field trials in 1953. Uh, sort of like the worst outbreak. So this would be in Alberta, Halifax, and Manitoba. They were all actually offered the ability to take part in the trial itself. Mm-hmm. And for reasons unbeknownst to me, the Manitoba government was like, no, we don't want to try the vaccine out. It's fine. Uh, weird. <laughs> and then like stepped back and said, we'll try it, but it's up to different municipalities to test it themselves. What a bad way to deal with a public health crisis. <laughs> Just say no to it. <laughs> or like, eh, you guys figure it out. Yeah. So Brandon and Dolphin participate in the trial, which called for vaccinating uh, children in grades one to three. Mm-hmm. And in June, the permission slips were handed out and the inoculation date was set for July 21st. And Winnipeg participated, but on a much limited, or a much like smaller scale mostly for logistical concerns. So Morley Lockheed, who was the medical health officer at the time, summed it up as you needed 5,000 liability waivers and then 1,000 children inoculated per day, which included sterilizing between 5,000 or 500 to 1,000 needles per day with Mm -hmm. no facility other than hospitals that were suitable, which were already stressed thin. Right. So they found 3,000 children to take part in Winnipeg, at least. So it was still done on a smaller capacity. We don't really know how it went, yeah, it'd be um, hard Liam, to do that without provincial support, I feel. Yeah. And like, so Leah Morton does this whole thesis on polio, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And she actually asked for the records on how this vaccine trial went, and the government didn't give it to her. <laughs> so we don't know. <sighs> oh, dear. But it does seem like people in Winnipeg were very interested in how the vaccine was going to proceed. So Lockheed went actually to Minnesota to watch the results of the trial. And in the States, it actually offered this incentive where if kids got vaccinated, they'd get lollipops. Aw. <laughs> so the vaccine in Canada is rolled out in the April of 1955, produced by teams uh, at a lab in Toronto. And the goal is to vaccinate most Canadian children by May. They're releasing it in April. Oh. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Delicious. in Manitoba, the first vaccines take place on April 18th at the Pamina Crest School in Fort Garry. There's two doctors, two public health nurses, a stenographer, and two auxiliary workers delivering the vaccines to 84 children. Hmm. They started at 1045, and by 4 p.m., they'd actually vaccinated 450 kids at 12 different schools in Fort Gary. Wow. Wow. So, like, it's a huge rollout. Yeah. And at this time, there are around 35,000 children to vaccinate in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And you would also need booster shots to increase effectiveness that would be delivered over the course of the following weeks. And this is maybe not a surprise. There were shortages, so not every kid was vaccinated by the end of May. Mm-hmm. But notably, as a result of the vaccine coming here, elementary school children in Winnipeg send a 208-foot-long telegram to Dr. Salk, adorned with each polio survivor's name and bearing little statements of gratitude, be like, we love you, Dr. Salk. Aww. I've seen a picture of this. It's very fun. Yeah. So essentially from this point onward, vaccines are slowly and steadily rolled out and polio cases do begin to decline. And there's a real push to stress how important it is to get vaccinated. I do actually have a picture of children receiving the first polio vaccine, if you want to see that. Yeah, let's see. One of them looks kind of scared and one of them looks like she's just happy to have her photo taken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it looks like it definitely looks a little less... um sort of organized than like modern (laughs) vaccines there's like three children kind of being held in the arms of one who i assume is a nurse (laughs) and uh yeah getting their needles i'm sure it was hard to organize 
a group of children at school, I feel like it would be very difficult to line them all up, especially with a camera there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I found the article I was going to talk about. So the Brandon Sun publishes this article about why it's important to catch polio or to get the vaccine. And it is called No Serum to Cure Polio After It Has Struck You. And it starts, you are wheeled into the isolation wing of a Toronto hospital. You have a searing headache. Your neck is stiff. Your back hurts. You can't walk. You have polio. In your delirium, you hear your wife and eldest son plead with the doctor to do something, anything right away. He tells them nothing can be done. He says there are no, no penicillin, no sulfa, no wonder drug that can halt or cure or curb the deadly rampage of the polio virus. Your life is in the hands of the gods. Yeah. And then it goes on to talk about like what happens in the most severe case. And then that's why you should get the vaccine. Right. <laughs> because you don't want to do that. I feel like that's a little more intense than the, like vaccine marketing right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. So yeah, it seems to be effective and cases do drop. Uh, in Canada in 1953, there were 9,000 cases. By 1965, there were only three cases. Wow. Like it plummets fast. Yeah. So it's not immediately eradicated and people are still working on more successful versions of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And this is where the Sabin vaccine comes in because this was an, ori- uh, an oral polio vaccine. Oh. So the first one's a needle. Yeah. This one is essentially a pill you swallow, more or less. Right. And I guess that's probably easier to organize as well. You don't have to have a nurse necessarily on site yeah. to deliver that. And easier to give to children. Yes. <laughs> Who famously love needles. <laughs> <laughs> so the vaccine is rolled out across Canada in 1961. And depending on where you are, provinces take a different approach to who's getting what. In Manitoba, they offer a mixed schedule of both uh, injected and oral vaccines. Today, we have something called PENTA, which covers diphtheria, influenza, and type B, and polio. Is that like one of the ones you get when you're a baby? Yeah, you get it when you're pretty young. I think four months old. Okay, yeah. But polio has been basically non-existent in Manitoba since 1979. Hmm. But that doesn't, like, mean that the people who caught polio abruptly stopped existing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there are people alive today who survived polio or knew people who had polio. Mm -hmm. It's not, like, ancient history anymore. And then for a lot of people who had polio, who'd been paralyzed or otherwise disabled, they existed in this really weird space where they weren't considered well, but they weren't considered sick. Mm. oh weird it's like a nebulous gray area for how people are going to like perceive you and treat you Mm -hmm. so there's a number of groups that crop up dedicated to helping rehabilitate polio victims so for kids you have something like the thursday morning club which met at the ymha and did like physical exercises and group therapy there was a concern that being uh laid up and isolated for so long might have some impact on your emotional development (laughs) interesting (laughs) What a theory. But the programs for adults were different because they were more skewed towards typical gender roles, especially in the 50s and the 60s. Mm. So for men, rehabilitation looked like finding employment, finding a way to provide for their families. And then for women, it had more to do with finding home care or child rearing. Mm -hmm. But the issue was these programs didn't always offer the support people needed. So like if someone wasn't fluent in English, they might not help them learn. Oh, yeah. And it's very hard to find a job. Yeah. 
if you find these really sad stories of women worrying that their husbands won't love them anymore because they use a wheelchair now or they'll be a worse uh-huh. mother because of it like these gender roles get really bogged down in people especially in like the recovery period yeah but for a lot of people it's kind of went on living mm-hmm. so there is actually something called the post-polio network that was founded in the 1970s which was a support group for people who were suffering from a post-polio syndrome which is a disorder of the nerves and muscles it's basically just weakness that gets worse over time mm-hmm. the group is actually still active Oh, cool. But they did a series of interviews in 2006 with polio patients and their experiences afterwards. And you see stuff like people finding ways to get by however they need to. So Mm -hmm. one woman caught polio when she was in middle school and had to use a wheelchair afterwards. And when she went to high school, her ninth grade classes were on the first floor. But beyond that point, everything else was on the upper levels. Right. And the building did not have an elevator. Oh dear. So the school gave her the option of leaving basically (laughs) or find a way around it. Oh no. But she she didn't want to leave her friends. Mm -hmm. So she and her friends came up with a system where her friends would actually carry her wheelchair up and down the stairs to get her to class. And they did that from grade 10 to grade 12. I mean, good for them, but that's a kid who the system has failed. I mean, yeah, the better answer is to install an elevator. Or just, like, move a class to a different floor. Before, Is that really yeah. such a big deal? Mm-hmm. Although, actually, yeah, having having said that, the school that I went to, I think, constructed an elevator to the second floor in, like, 2011. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, there was another boy who actually got pulled to school in a wagon by his brothers. Aw. There's other stories of what you might expect with, like, people being bullied or having their canes or walking aids stolen or being yeah. generally, like pushed around for being a little different but for the most part people seem to have found like different ways to like get around issues and create social networks and just keep living their lives but when they were recording these histories in 2006 they asked why people were taking part and most of them said it's because they didn't want their stories to be forgotten Mm -hmm. and i feel like in some ways polio as a whole kind of has been because we don't talk about that much anymore it wasn't like a disease on my radar until i got older yeah and got interested in history yeah, I guess I knew it vaguely, knew about it vaguely yeah. just because my grandpa had it. But even then, we never talked about like what that had meant. Yeah. And what's weird about this specifically is that this was a thing that impacted Winnipeg really severely from 1928 until 1953. Yeah. That's a huge chunk of our history where this is just sort of a constant of people who were like living and working and trying to get by. Mm-hmm. And there, I have many questions for this episode that I didn't quite get answered. Like, say, what happened at residential schools? Mm, yeah. yeah. That's, I'm sure a, that's a whole episode's worth of stuff right there. <laughs> it probably yeah. is. I mean, the issue was I couldn't find anything. So there's like yeah. things that maybe we just won't know. But yeah, I mean, the upside here is that polio is not really a reality for us anymore. Yeah. We're vaccinated. We don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, and, in, hopefully in whatever 50 years, people can do a similar COVID episode. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think probably they could recycle parts of mine with some yeah. of like, the social <laughs> concerns. And then there was a nurse shortage. Bitch. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> so hopefully this episode wasn't too, too much of a bummer. I felt it was, it was kind of nice to like go through something that we'd been through already, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
to take some comfort from the past, however morbid yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we've we've um in Manitoba, I feel like talked a bit about like the Spanish flu epidemic and that. Yeah. I feel like polio hasn't come up quite as much. No, it was sort of difficult to find sources for it. Mm-hmm. So much of work comes from Leah Morton's thesis or the work of Christopher Ruddy. I also yeah, have so thanks to thanks to Leah, who yes. works at the Manitoba Museum and is awesome. Most of this episode is based on her research. Yeah. <laughs> I also have to thank uh, Melissa with the Brandon General Museum, who sent me many fabulous news clippings about what polio was like out in Brandon, and uh, my friend Kimber, who helped all of my science questions while studying <laughs> for the most insane exam I've ever heard of. <laughs> so that's everything you need to know on polio in Manitoba. We've got some big news. One Great History is now on patreon if you want to help support us to keep this thing going this is very much a passion project for all of us we just like talking about winnipeg history but we have to pay for streaming we have to buy research materials sometimes things sadly cost money turns out books on harlequin romance are really expensive (laughs) (laughs) we'll need a lot of patreon our patron subscribers to do that but (laughs) if you want to chip in we have two tiers one at three dollars one at five you get fun, exciting stuff like Ginger Snook's news clippings for anyone who wants to hear more about my favorite garbage man. <laughs> but also exciting bonus episodes where Alex and I talk about things that we can't quite fit into normal episodes or things we wanted to put on tours but couldn't in the past. Lots of very weird Winnipeg tidbits. You can check that out at patreon.com slash history. If you want to check us out on social media, we're on Facebook and Instagram at One Great History, and we are on Twitter at the number One Great History. So you can visit our website at onegreathistory.wordpress.com to see pictures and sources for this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Thank you.